Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. I'm happy to welcome our speaker tonight. It's Tim from Oceanside, California. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here and, and to share. Um, um, yeah, again, my name is Tim C. and I'm a grateful member of ACA. It's really changed my life and I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I'll try not to dwell too long on my childhood. Although I will talk about that. Um, I don't, I think a lot of our stories overlap in so many ways and with a lot of the same outcomes, um, which is great and what we have in common, but I really want to get into, you know, the recovery part. And I think you'll see my recovery was not a straight route. Um, it's taken a while and it's uh, been accelerating though, uh, even in the last few months, let alone the last few years. And so, um, look forward to sharing about that. So, um, a little bit of background of my parents and how I ended up in ACA is my uh, my parents met in Michigan uh, in one of the auto plants in Detroit. Uh, my dad was electrician in one of the plants. He was actually a head electrician in one of the plants, um, which was pretty amazing. He grew up in Tennessee. He was the youngest of 12 kids, um, grew up in North Central Tennessee by the Kentucky border, extremely poor family, um, truly a hillbilly family, if you will, uh, with no shoes, dirt floors, the whole thing, one room. And he was the youngest of 12 kids. So his parents were in their 50s um, when he was born. And my parents were ended up um, married 12 years before I was born. They were trying to have kids and couldn't have kids, about ready to adopt when they had me. So by the time I was born, my grandparents were long passed on on that side of the family. In fact, a couple of his brothers and sisters died as teenagers and that kind of thing. Um, and so he had an education from a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, which was kind of part of the things that led him later to drink, I think. Um, he uh, basically had what was probably the equivalent today of a second or third grade education. Um, but he, so he could hardly read or write, but he was a genius when it came to engineering. He could put anything together, take anything apart. Um, when he worked at some of the auto plants, he was actually helped design some of the machinery from the, some of the first automated machinery, things like that. So um, just had a knack for that kind of thing. The, um, um, my mother uh, grew up in Detroit. Um, her parents, uh, um, her father worked at the auto plants. And so my mom, um, when she got in uh, through eighth grade, she got very, very sick um, with pleurisy or something with her lungs. And so she couldn't attend school, um, took about two years to heal. And they took her, they kept her out of school that whole time. By the time it came time to go back to school, uh, World War II had started. <clears throat> and so um, she never went to school again. She was 16 years old, but she lied about her age, said she was 18 and went to work on one of the auto plants um, who were then making uh, Navy guns and things like that for surface ships. And so she worked there. Uh, eventually my father showed up there um, and met her in a tool crib area. She was handing out specialized tools and things like that. And, and that's how they ended up meeting. Um, so uh, they ended up uh, getting married at like 20 and she was 17. Um, you know, a dozen years go by. They were doing very well in Michigan. Um, my father, uh, it was all, you know, United Auto Workers, big union thing. Um, he had done quite well as a young guy, um, head electrician, one of the big plants. <clears throat> but he overheard some people talking one time. They said, look, you know, his name was Les. Said, Les has no education. He could run one of these plants if he had education, but he doesn't. And um, he, he just overheard all this and he thought, yeah, 
And it, it, he, I think this started the whole thing with him of shame. He knew he'd never amount to anything more there than what he already was at 30, 32 years old. So he'd been to California once to see an older sister, decided to come out to California. California was like a land of opportunity, you know, great weather, which my dad was sick of the weather in Michigan anyway, um, but also booming with work. You could just show up here and there was stuff being built and, and all that kind of thing. So he decided to come here and start his own business. So came out here and I had been born. So I was, I turned four years old here in California. Southern California is about 45 minutes from where I am right now. Um, and my sister was uh, two years, two, two and a half years younger than me uh, when we showed up here. And I took this picture because I just I was doing some stuff today. I don't know if you can see this. This is, this is us um, having arrived in California. And this is an old faded black and white photo. And this was, we were kind of a neat little family. And this was at Big Bear Village up in Big Bear Mountain, Lake Arrowhead, a couple hours from here. Um, so my dad started uh, uh, his own electrical construction firm, um, did uh, industrial and uh, new construction, banks, shopping centers, that kind of thing. Started working on seven elementary schools. And without going into stories, they're actually interesting stories, but without going into it, about a year after starting all of that, he went bankrupt. And it really, as I look, you know, I ended up becoming a CPA and all this stuff, but um, looking back on the whole thing and knowing all the stories, as I learned later through the years, um, it was truly no fault of his own at all, um, but uh, went bankrupt, owed like a quarter of a million dollars in 1961 to wholesale houses and stuff. That was a lot of money. Um, over the next 20 years, he actually paid it all back, which he didn't need to, but he did. So we lived a very small life after that. Now, I remember standing in our garage. I was six years old. Um, and seeing a, a sheriff came in. And I remember he looked very sad. And he had a bunch of papers in his hands. And my mom was really quiet and sad. And we had this little tiny 15-foot boat. My dad used to take me out in, in Newport Bay um, to go fishing once in a while. And my, we actually had a Cadillac car, a black Cadillac car. And I remember the sheriff came and took the car, and took the boat, and took a whole bunch of stuff. But he left the truck and the tools um, in our house. And my dad got drunk. Um, he was, I think, deeply, deeply ashamed of what had happened. Um, again, I think feeling like a failure, like, see, I'll never amount to nothing. I don't have an education. I'm stupid. And his inner critic took off. And he got drunk, and he didn't get sober again for 20 years. Um, I think my dad, I saw him sober probably most of the time was about once a month, usually on a Sunday for some reason, like once a month. Um, my dad was a very angry alcoholic. He was mean, flat out mean. My dad had grown up fighting and did a lot of that in Detroit. That was kind of part of the auto workers thing on Friday nights you get drunk or go down and clean out a bar. My dad was a, when I was like 10 and 11 years old, went back to Michigan and all these men would say, hey, are you a fighter like your old man? And he'll clean out a whole bar all by himself. I mean, he's an amazing motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was this whole thing. And I watched my dad beat the hell out of people in the back of bar parking lots and stuff. We used to go out trying to find him. He had about seven different bars, but one in particular he frequented a lot. Um, Sometimes I was sent in to go get him, that kind of thing. But my dad, um, on his side of things, for, him, for with him, with me, he, I could do nothing good enough. Um, I was just a stupid little idiot to him. Um, he used to walk up to me, too, and choose me off. He'd look down at me and say, man, I bet you want to put your fist in my face. Uh, maybe one day you'll get a chance to. And he'd just look at me, and, I, and I, he had scared the crap out of me because um, again, I watched him beat the hell out of so many grown men that were twice his size, um, that, uh, was just so afraid. And I, I tried and I tried and I tried to please him, to be good enough. And 
and I, I just, he couldn't even come close. He would just, I mean, once, once we were, we had to learn pull-ups for this, um, you know, I had to do pull-ups in fourth grade. And I, 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 to this day, I can do quite a few pull-ups, but I did well in the class that day, never done a pull-up before in my life. And that day I waited for my father, which I never usually wait for my dad. And when he came home, I stood back from him. Um, a lot of times he didn't come home. You never knew if he was even coming home for two and three days at a time, but he came home and I said, Hey dad, and da, 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 da. I did, you know, X pull-ups today. And the biggest kid in the class only did one more than me. And my dad just looked at me absolutely disgusted. And he just said, when I was your age, I could do 10 pull-ups with one arm. And he just walked, he just brushed me aside and walked past me. And that was the typical thing for my dad. And so we ended up moving. Um, my dad just bought a house, another house. And we suddenly moved literally two weeks later when I was 12. And um, he wanted somewhere to park the trucks off the street and lost all my friends and all that in the process. And when he did that, I remember I quit everything, baseball, you name it. I stopped everything. I didn't, I was tired of being hurt. And I also quit. I was telling some people earlier today, I, I used to be, I have a pretty high power to weight ratio as a kid and stuff. And I used to like, you know, I could run as fast as a lot of the track team kids just in PE class. Um, it, coaches would say, hey, you ought to come out for track or something like that. And there was no effing way I was going to do that. If I couldn't be best in the state of California, you weren't good enough. And so I just nodded my head and went home and did my homework and went on my way. I never even tried any of that stuff. And I quit everything when I was 12. Parallel to this, my mother um, was a housewife, um, very intelligent person, just like my dad in so many ways. Um, I learned a lot of wisdom from her, um, but she was completely overwhelmed by all the chaos, very angry. Um, she, she, she bounced from crying and sobbing and broken and then viciously angry. And I was around her way more, a factor of 30 more than my father. Um, and I had this little sister, and my sister was constantly vomiting. And my mom would take her to all these doctors. Like all the time, I remember that. And finally, one day, a doctor told my mother, lady, there's nothing wrong with this little girl. She's scared out of her mind. Like, what's going on in your home? And my mom just went, and bam, that was it. She took it out of that doctor and never went to another doctor again. Um, and that was my mom's way of kind of coping was just shut up, don't bother people, isolate, run. Um, when I was eight years old, she told me more than a few times, she said, she's sitting there crying, honey, just get your things and run away, get your things and run away. She wanted me just to run away. And I remember when I was in my 30s doing recovery, I asked her, I said, did you say that or I just dreamed that up? She said, no, I, no, I told you that many times. And I said, gosh, it scared the hell out of me. I was just a little kid. And my mom, when I was 35, she's like, what, 60 something? That didn't phase her at all, even at 60. My mom was just very kind of cut off. And she, out of, out of her upbringing, which I won't get into because of a lot of men and the way my dad was, she was very angry at men. She had a mean streak toward him. I was a little man. And um, a lot of that got taken out on me. And one of the last story I'll tell about childhood stuff was just that um, when I was about eight or nine years old, one time I was sitting there watching a TV movie and it was a, you know, there was a, a couple that ended up making love in this movie, the way they did it in the old black and white days. You just saw them go into a room and come out later on and that kind of thing. And I'm just sitting there. I didn't even know what they were doing. Um, I was just a little kid. I was a nice little kid. And all of a sudden, I am flying through the air by my collar and my face gets slammed into the TV set. And she holds me there. It's my mother. And she starts yelling and she's half crying and half screaming. And she just said, see, men hurt women. Men hurt women. Don't you ever do that. And she threw me across the room. 
slamming the sofa and she stomped out of the room. And I remember I watched all this and I ran up to the TV and I was staring, 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 trying to figure out what they had done. Um, what the guy did, what did he do? Cause I didn't want to do it. And I, 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 just, I didn't understand, but I've, to this moment, I have that whole thing burned in my brain. Um, and so now I know what he did and all these things, but Anyway, that was kind of my growing up. And when I was a teenager, I was like 17. My sister was 15. They always had these girls over. A lot of girls, a lot of girls. In fact, I used to drive them around. I had a pickup truck and I'd take them to basketball games. My sister had a big cadre of friends. Um, And I I really didn't. Um, More of a lone wolf. And um, my mother would sit up in the kitchen and mock me in front of these 15-year-old girls. Um, and And thought it was absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Um, and a teenage, here's a teenage boy getting mocked in front of a bunch of 15 year old girls. When my sister had her 50th wedding anniversary a few years ago here, all those girls came to that wedding anniversary. And my mother now blind and deaf almost came in and starts talking with them and starts acting in a lot of the same manner. And one of the girls looked at me and she goes, this probably feels really familiar, doesn't it? Like that. And I said, yeah, I mean, these girls have grown up, they're grown women. But anyway, so that Stuff with my mom probably scarred me actually longer term more than my dad's stuff. That was just all this. So I ended up graduating high school. I go to college. Didn't know that I would or wouldn't. We didn't know anybody who went to college. We didn't grow up on a street where anybody went to college, but I had good grades in high school. I went to college. Um, I did I did some things in college that are important. One, I, I did really, really well in school. I got straight A's, graduated top class, top student, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Won a lot of awards. Um, and in part because of that, there was a couple guys there that drugged me, literally kicking and screaming because I was a shut down, shut down, shut down kid. Um, but they drugged me into leadership positions and some things right before the last two years of school, which ended up changing my life because I saw that I was kind of a natural in front of people leading and doing things like that. And I enjoyed it. And that kind of took my life on that direction later on. The other thing was when I was 20, um, a young lady that I was asking out on a date. Um, ended up taking me to a um, Christian outreach concert. And um, I'd never heard the word love shared so many times that this Jesus love me, Jesus love me. And I was one of those guys who like ran down the aisle to accept Christ as my savior. And so I became a Christian when I was 20. And that was another thing that turned my, started, it just began to turn my life. Um, And uh, uh, so I graduated from college. and I'm working at Coopers and Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of these big four accounting firms. And about a year into that, um, I mean, I hated the job. I hated the work. I was real good at it, but I didn't like it. It just, my life just seemed utterly empty. I'd read the Bible through like twice, but I had no one to mentor me or disciple me or anything. So I put my head down one day, and this is really important. I just, I prayed for a Christian friend, this one friend to come show me more about God. I just wanted to know more, but I really wanted a friend. And then I stopped praying and I looked up and I was at this, this one job site. Everybody went to lunch. I was all by myself sitting there. And then I also prayed and God, please do something for my dad. I remember just saying that because my father, by then he was in his, he was 58 and he was starting to become like a homeless man. Now he's getting weaker and weaker and broken down in his brain. Sometimes, you know, again, I could tell 10 stories, but he would be like talking at the air and yelling at things and that kind of stuff. He was just starting to lose it. Um, within two weeks of that prayer, my father had a massive stroke. He almost died. He spent five months in the VA hospital. Um, 
got out of there. Um, I actually took two months off work and I, I used to, I grew up working with him and I finished his last job. Um, being, I was basically like electrical contractor for two months. Um, and uh, I also, during that, during right around that time, like within a, the same two or three weeks, I was doing a lot of volunteering for mentally, um, like basically called mentally retarded adults at the time, um, pretty much every weekend. And this band came, like a little Christian band called His Seed. They came to play and I helped them pick up all their chords and stuff at the end, all that. And they took a liking to me. And a few months later, after my dad's stroke, I mean, they didn't know anything about that, but they called me. And long story short, I ended up hooking up with these guys and gals. It was two huge families, the Sullivans and the Crawfords. And these were, one was a big Irish Catholic family, like 80 people. I mean, you go to a beach party, it was all them. It was like a hundred people at the beach. And I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. And it was just two families. And they took me under their wing and my family. My dad, by then it had a stroke and my dad never drank again once he had that stroke. And that was another massive pivot. And these people were like Ozzy and Harriet. And hanging around them about a year, I could see they would, they liked each other. They had fun. I mean, we played softball. That's when VCRs were new. We'd all go rent a video. We'd all stop at a store. Everybody would run by all their own candy. And there'd be like 12, 25 year olds sitting around watching some movie eating licorice. <laughs> that was every weekend. I mean, birthday parties galore because it's such a big family, all these things. And um, I, I, um, this gal threw a, when I was 26, she threw a surprise birthday party for me. And I could sit here and cry right now if I told you about it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I've never had anybody do that. I hardly, after my sixth year of my sixth birthday, I never really had another birthday party till I was 26. Um, and long story short, I saw in these people emotions. I saw them laugh. I saw them cry. I saw them get mad at each other and argue, but then make up and hug each other and start laughing again. And I, I just, I marveled at all of this. I marveled at it because I started noticing the more I was around him that I could get hit in the head with an ax or I could win the lottery. And the difference between the two was that much. It was nothing. It was nothing. And so I started looking for help. Um, I wanted what they had in their eyes. And um, I went to two different counselors that were kind of goofy guys. And I wasted a year with one and wasted a year with another. And finally, um, I met this guy when I was 30 named Keith. And he, he, he knew ACA. He was an ACA. And, um, and to see him, I mean, I, I remember meeting with him the first time. And I, I told him my story really quick. And I said, you know, can you help me? And I said, if you can't, can you please? I mean, literally, I was begging him. I said, can you please send me to somebody who can I said, I want what they, because I saw, I can, I can name now what I want. I want what they have. I want what they have. And he said, well, just come, come like three times and let's just keep talking and we'll see, you know, if, if you don't find that, I will help you. And I said, good. I never left. I mean, the guy was awesome. He was amazing. But to see him, he also said, you have to go to ACA meetings. And I've been to like two of them my whole life. And I said, oh, people there are always angry with their parents. They hate their parents. I don't hate my parents. And he said, doesn't matter to me. He says, you got to go if you're going to see me. And I said, okay. And he gave me a list of like five books by Melanie Beatty and all these people. And he said, I want you to read these books. And I said, which one, you know, and he says, just read them all and just talk to me. And so I started reading these books and uh, going to meetings and I started remembering things. Oh my God, how much I had suppressed. I started remembering all kinds of insanity, um, hearing other people's stories, reading these books. Um, and I, I should say at this time, in my 20s, like I was, I was smart and I was really hardworking. I was a nice guy, except I had an 
and I, I vaulted in by the time I was 30, I was chief financial officer of a hospital. I had a contempt though for authority. If you were an, I was an authority figure. And if you were an authority figure, if you did well by people, by our staff and by things, I esteemed you. But if you were an asshole and you hurt people and used power to hurt people, I'd crawl up your butt in a bad way. And I mean, I did that with CEOs, board members, everything. I, it's a wonder I didn't get fired more than a few times early on. I think it's too long of a story to tell. There's just certain attributes about me that kind of could see around corners and people, you know, um, always kept me on. And it wasn't like I was a bull in a china shop every minute. Not, not that, but I definitely had a, a chip on my shoulder. Um, other than that, I was a really nice guy. I didn't know much about who I was. Nothing had ever been mirrored to me. And I dated people, uh, women and stuff, but I was mostly plus or minus, more or less anorexic. I isolated a lot. I chose people I could rescue and rescuing as my life went on. And I just saw this really in the last year or so. I mean, rescuing became my identity, both with women, especially, and with organizations. I, I became a turnaround expert um, in Orange County in Los Angeles. Um, got paid a lot of money to take hospitals that were going bankrupt and turn them around and not only turn them around financially, but also reposition them in the market, get the staff to stand up. And I mean, I could get people to walk through walls for me. Um, and I loved that. I loved that kind of hospitals were open 24, 7, 365, which was perfect for me, became a workaholic and they helped people, which I wanted to be a part of. So I was part of an organization that rescued people. <laughs> um, and I rescued the organization itself. I became the organization's rescuers often, and the staff loved me. And all that affirmation I fed off of, and I literally worked 12, 14, 16 hour days for years till I was about 40, 41. Um, it was nuts. My whole 20s and 30s, that's what I did. Um, and that's how I coped though. That's how I got by. That was my drug of choice was work. Uh, work, and re work and rescuing were intertwined with me. Um, but when I was 30, I met Keith um, and made me, you know, go to these meetings and things. Um, I was rock climbing with a buddy of mine um, just a few months after I started um, with Keith. And one night it was like, God, I had three dreams. Oh, I should say, um, no, I said that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I had these three dreams back to back to back, just real quick little dreams. The first was about my father. Um, and I saw his meanness, but else God like showed me his brokenness, his absolute brokenness. That's really what the dream was about. I saw his brokenness. And I'd never seen that because I always knew my dad is strong, could do anything and mean. And now I saw this broken side to him. Um, the next dream was about my mother and sister. They were together in this dream. And for them, I was like, oh, my mom and sister. And then I saw how mean they were, absolutely vicious um, toward me. And um, and I'll tell more about that later because I think I've, 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 especially with my mom, I've to this to till just a few months ago, I've fought that that persona of my mother until recently, um, and that was not a wise thing to do. Um, the third dream I didn't understand at first, and I saw myself walking in the gym at my college, bouncing a basketball like I was going to go shoot some hoops, and I walked in. I was just and. <clears throat> I saw people doing things in the gym, amazing athletes, you know, gymnastics and this, this, this. And I look and I go, wow, I could never do that. Wow, I could never do that. And as I was saying these things, suddenly I felt a presence to my right about 30, 40 yards away. And 
I said, wow, I couldn't do that looking at something. And I felt this presence and I heard this, ah, but you're fine. You're just fine. And I looked over and there was this person who I couldn't quite make out. And he's standing about 30 yards away to my right. And he was smiling at me. I could see this smile, like this absolute smile. And I could, there was like this corona around him, a power. And he freaked me out a little bit and I saw him. And then somebody did something to my left. An amazing thing I watched and I went, wow. And I, but I, I, I couldn't do that. I pointed that way and he goes, ah, but you're fine. You're just fine. And that happened a couple more times. And finally I turned to him. I could realize he could read my thoughts and I could see him. And I, I saw this ray of light coming out of his brain and like his head and just going through the sky forever, kind of like the Twin Towers kind of a thing. And I looked over at him and he was scary because I could feel this power come off of him. And yet I could feel this love, this absolute love. And I looked at him and I, given my orientation, I just said, are you Jesus? And he looked at me and he smiled even bigger. And he shook his head really slowly and he said, no, no. He says, but I know him really, really well. And the dream ended like that. And I saw Keith a few days later and I told him about each dream in detail. And we talked about each one. And finally, the last one, I said, I don't know what this one means. It's really weird. And I explained it to him. And by the time I'm finishing this dream, he scoots up in his chair and he's sitting at the edge. He goes, Tim, you know, you know who that person is. You know who that person is, Tim. And I thought, I don't know. When he's first saying this, I looked at him like he's crazy. And you know, you know. And all of a sudden I looked at him, I go, it was me. And he goes, ah, I wrote this, but I said, it's me. And he, he said, it is, it is, that is you. He goes, that's a part of you that survived and lived and grew up. And he goes, you're going to be that person one day. And I honestly, I feel at this point in my life, I am, because for years I haven't felt, I call that person Timothy. I give him my full name. I've not felt like him ever really, really, maybe for a minute here and a minute there, but it's always something to aspire to. And honestly, in the last few months, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm kind of hip deep in that guy now. And that's what I want to hopefully get to sharing here. When I was 33 years old, my father died. And um, in fact, right around the time of these dreams, I had the opportunity, he ended up dying in my hospital. Um, he died, he was only 66 years old, cancer of the esophagus. But I got to lead him to Christ. And it was, it was, um, and he told me that big strong arm as he pulled me in, he said, son, don't ever leave God like I did as a young man. I didn't know my dad even knew God at all. My dad acted like, in fact, when I told him I accepted Christ a few years earlier, I don't want to make this a Christian thing, but um, ten year, almost 10 years earlier to the month, I said, oh, dad, I said, I accepted the Lord because they said that you should tell somebody. And I told my father and he looked at me and goes, yeah, well, fuck you. I mean, that was my dad's response 10 years earlier. And here it is. I'm leading him to Christ in his bed. And he, and he died about three years later. And my dad changed radically, radically. And he became my greatest champion my greatest champion. He loved me unconditionally. I really miss him. That's so crazy to say. If you'd seen my childhood, that's insane. It's insane. My dad was a mean son of a bitch. But not before he died. And he loved, uh, he loved me to death. And there's times I'm sitting here 
uh, trying to reparent myself with my kids, my inner kids, I remember my dad. I remember him holding me. Um, and all those memories are from the last couple of years of his life. So, in fact, this photo I showed you, this is a, this is a, I mean, it's got my mom's writing in the back. This photograph is one of two that I had. And um, the other one is with my father in his casket. I put it in his hands when I closed the casket. So anyway, in 1992, my dad died in 1992. Two years later, um, I went to um, the uh, John Bradshaw Clinic in uh, Houston and did a four-day thing with them where they just have seven people and they work with you. And oh my gosh, um, my little six-year-old kid, and I, I don't want to run out of time telling too many stories, but I had this clear vision. Um, my, what's my point of that? My point of this is up till then, I'd seen my littlest inner child. He's six years old at the time when dad started drinking. And he was always holding what looked like a hot air balloon. I mean, really big. And inside that hot air balloon, is a home, a family, my dog. It's everything that's ever good about life, like Americana. And he was always stuck. And I told Keith, my therapist, I said, you know, this kid's stuck holding this big stuff. He wants it. But I said, I, I'm tired of waiting for him. I'm going on. And Keith was like, oh, don't do that. You know, and at this John Bradshaw clinic, um, this lady, she was an amazing woman. And she said, you're going to have a revelation tonight. There's seven of us. And I, that night I saw this child. And for whatever reason, my heart broke for him. And I finally made up my mind. I said, I'm staying with you. If you want to sit here forever and ever and hold that big balloon of memories, I'll stay. I'm not leaving because everybody else has tried to, like, I've tried to ditch you. I think the world has ditched you. You know, um, I'm not ditching you. I'm staying. And so the next day I shared this in the clinic and they said, can we work with that? I said, sure. And long story short, this child ended up thinking he was going to die by because we visualized this kid. And I mean, it was like real. And I could see the kid looking at me and looking back, looking at me and looking back. And he let go of that balloon, thinking he was going to die. The second he let go of that big balloon of memories, he was going to just evaporate. But he wanted to try to get in my lap for one second if he could. And that kid landed in my lap and he didn't die. And he's been with me ever since and been a large part of my heart. Um, and that was an amazing thing. And I thought I came home from that. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe I'm healed now. I'm healed now, you know, da, da, da. I'd started, I've been going to ACA meetings and stuff and like not even a chance, not even close. There's a lot more to go. Um, in the mid nineties, a few years later, um, I was dating a girl. That whole thing went sideways. I mean, in a really big way, given who she was and all these things. And long story short, I got suicidal for the first time in my life. I was truly suicidal. And, um, and here I was running this hospital by then and all this kind of stuff. And it was so weird because I could be this workaholic and I could handle 2,000 people and do all this stuff. And at my lunch hour, I would go into the chapel and close and lock the door and turn into a ball of snot. I mean, an absolute cry till I was ready to implode. I mean, I lost like 20 pounds and all that. I'd wipe all that off, a whole box of Kleenex, walk out that door, go back and run the hospital. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, but that's what I did. And during that time, I met my inner critic, I met this giant, I should, um, this giant <clears throat> critic.
It looked like that. I don't know if this would show up on a thing. But I'm this little person. There's this giant thing screaming at me, ripping my head off. <clears throat> and I went, oh, my God. And um, uh, and there's, there's so many stories to tell about that, but I'll run out of time if I do. Um, a couple years later, these are all steps in my recovery. I ended up um, doing some hypnosis sessions to try to break some things in me. And my 12-year-old locked himself away, which is too long of a story to tell, when we moved. I literally, when we moved and I left all these friends behind, I literally shut a piece of myself off. I didn't even understand how much I did. And here I am now, 52 years old, almost 40 years to the month. And during this session, this child shows up and he is going, <laughs> he is so, he's frightened out of his mind. He'd been locked in that bedroom back at that house in essence, ever for 40 years. And he showed up because I started showing up. Um, and I'm going, I wasn't really off and on over all these years and went to ACA meetings. I always had a therapist. I had some really good therapists. But I don't know, just wasn't, you know, and I made some, some real big healing and other times you'd just be flat for three years. Um, but finally, the very year after that, um, um, uh, episode there, the hypnosis sessions and all this. Um, <clears throat> the 12 steps kind of in our community in Palo Alto, I was, by then I was working at Stanford University Children's Hospital and my therapist said, hey, the, the ACA community is really going here. You ought to get involved in it. And so I, I went and there was a gal, they were ready to start. In fact, they'd already started a, um, um, you know, a 12-step actual recovery group working the steps in the yellow book. And I immediately joined it uh, like the next week and started working through that. And the 12 steps, I worked through those things and oh my gosh, I changed radically. And, um, and we did them in about nine months total. Um, <clears throat> there were just, I mean, and I, I can't say enough about um, honestly how much I changed, how much clarity I got and everything else to this day. When I, to this day, when I look back at my yellow book and I look at the things I wrote, I'm like, wow, this is profound even now. Um, and then at that point, I ended up through a long story short, because I want to run out of time here. I ended up working, going to the Middle East for work. I went to Qatar, to the nation of Qatar. Spent almost three years in Qatar working, doing hospitals, a huge hospital being built for the kind of the queen mom of Qatar. Um, my mother died my first few months I was there. Um, I came home, I got home and I was able to, she couldn't talk to me, but I could talk to her in the rental car driving to try to get to my sister's, sister's home up in Santa Rosa, um, up there in Northern California. Mom was living there by then. And I missed my mom by about 30 minutes, but she heard my voice. She took like two more big breaths and she passed away. And I always, I loved my mom to death. And I always tried and tried and tried. In fact, I, 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 um, shared Christ with her. I brought her to Christ a couple years before she died. I mean, all this stuff. Just there's, there's just too many stories to tell. But my mom was always still very distant, always very distant. My dad was the kind of guy, ironically, this fighter killer dad was the kind of guy that would come hug you right before he died. I mean, just and, and just over the top. And my mother was just like always kind of arm's length. Um, so I came home, um, 
I was in Qatar almost three years. I came home. I just turned 60. Um, this is, I'm six, I just turned 64 on Monday. And um, so, uh, the, you know, this time, you know, this year, I came home and uh, decided to, I'd made enough money and then all this stuff. I thought maybe let's skip working for a while. I can always do that again if I want. And I haven't, I haven't went back to work. Um, but I, and I ended up moving down here towards San Diego and I was living down here. Um, buddy of mine who I knew from years ago, also ACA, I mean, all this kind of stuff. And I was just, I joined ACA, was doing some stuff here. Long story short, um, something just wasn't right. I, like I didn't know ACA in Qatar. I was in Qatar. I didn't know ACA in Qatar. And I came home and I was kind of hit and missing it down here in San Diego. And finally, um, I had a, a, a relationship with a young lady here who that, um, you know, just went sideways and it woke me up um, in a big, big way. And I started, I, I really, losing my track of my thoughts here, sorry. Um, um, I finally got a sponsor um, who's um, here on the, this call tonight. Um, I got a sponsor and, and, and I really got into this whole thing of parenting. Um, of, uh, um, gosh, I'm losing so much of my train of thought right now. I apologize. Um, but I went to the parenting workshops um, that, uh, that were put on here a few months ago. Some of you I know have attended those. And I started um, trying to finally um, uh, parent my inner children. <clears throat> And I, I do that now, I've done that now for four months. Um, it's been, well, since middle of November, I've been doing that every single day, just spending time, spending time, spending time, um, talking to my, to, to my kids, trying to understand them. I have cried and cried and cried through so much stuff. I finally got in touch. Um, I'd always protected my mom in so many ways, actually physically protected her growing up, but then also mentally, emotionally protected her so much. And I finally got in touch with how much she had hurt me. Um, um, she had really, really, really hurt me through a lot of things she said and did. And I finally got angry at that and had to process that. All the while, I love my mom, but we're in a, and she's passed away, of course, and everything, but we're in a, I'm in a very different place with her um, where I had to finally start loving myself and taking care of myself and things like this. And I finally really, really begun to do that. And that came through these, um, uh, through the sponsorship and through the parenting workshops um, that we did. Um, let's see what else. I started making my inner kids like the love of my life. Um, uh, started doing a lot of things to take myself there. <clears throat> and now I feel so much... Um, I'm so sorry I'm losing my train of thought looking at my notes and things, but um, I've really come to spend time to sit with my children inside of me, to parent them, to love them, to get quiet, and to like leave them no matter what, um, to not to choose not to leave them. And that has been an enormous change in my life. And it's taken my whole ACA walk into a completely another place. <clears throat> I also um, started some um, 
uh, norm therapy, which is a whole another kind of therapy. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't want to run out of time before I say all these things. Um, it's just been these last four months, basically, since about the middle of November, as the workshops were going on and doing these, um, uh, these workshops, um, I, started, I started doing the parenting work then, like, you know, really parenting myself, taking care of myself. Um, and it took, I probably cried my eyes out for the, for the next three months. And then like in this last four to six weeks, I've come to a place I no longer feel, um, um, my kids are like in a good place and they really, really trust me now. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I've just moved to a whole nother place and I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. I keep apologizing for that, but I, I kind of have, I want to summarize though, cause my, I'm just here a few minutes from the end. Um, the key lessons and things that I want to uh, share here are to really, once you find your inner kids, is to commit to them, um, like 105%. Um, I wrote here to expect um, you know, expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction. I feel like a lot of times I take two steps forward and one and a half back. And that used to really bother me. And I used to think, oh, I've lost it. I've lost it. I lost my recovery. And it's like, I've learned. It's like, no, you haven't. You take the two steps forward and then you will take one and a half back, not two. Just keep walking it forward. Keep walking it forward. Um, I've learned not to isolate. I no longer, um, I attend meetings. I, I go to several meetings. And things like this, even if I feel better, because before sometimes I get feeling like, hey, I'm doing really well. And then I attend a lot less meetings now. I'm, it's not like I need to attend 100 meetings. I do attend quite a few because um, I help people and do other things myself. But it's also that, and I, I want to give back, but it's also that I want to keep my recovery alive um, and don't want to lose that. I also, um, I journal quite a bit, um, have a, a mindfulness practice where I stop and um, um, every day, once I spend time, I pray, and then I get in time with my, my kids, and I sit with them. I have photographs that I use um, uh, to remind me of my children at different ages that I see, and we'll have different conversations and things, honestly. And, um, and then I stop, and I'll spend time um, just in mindful meditation for like 25 minutes and just get really, really quiet and really, really in touch with myself. Um, I want to say that if... Uh, you know, a lot of this too is just being consistent. Um, no matter how awkward things feel, it's the consistency. It's having compassion for yourself. Um, when you're in doubt, there was times when I'm doing, spending time with my, my kids, my inner kids and stuff, and I'd be crying my eyes out and I'm trying to separate, well, which one is crying? And sometimes I just couldn't tell. It's like, you know, just have compassion for all of you, Tim. Just have compassion. Um, and not isolate, but stay in meetings, you know, stay in things where you're sharing and doing things like this. The end game for me is to try to parent myself full-time, not on some part-time basis, but to really, truly become, you know, they say the solution is to become your own loving parent. And it really, really is to become your own loving parent. And the parenting meetings, the call to parenting meetings, of, I attend several, I, um, I'm a secretary of one, things like that. 
it has changed me from all that work that I did in the 12 steps, which took me probably 70% of the way home. I lost probably back to 50% of that when I went to guitar because I just got completely out of ACA. And when I came back and had this relationship thing go sideways, and I got back um, in touch with myself, back, back into my recovery work more on a full-time basis, I could recover that pretty quickly. But the parenting work took me further than ever before. Um, I really, the, you know, they keep saying the solution is to become your own loving parent. And it really, really is. But a lot of times we don't know how to become our own loving parent. And the call to parent meetings and other things that Robert and others have started, I mean, there's a whole um, organization of that going on now. They, the workshops and stuff show you how to become your own loving parent. Um, and if you're willing to do that and willing to step into that, um, there is so much healing to be had. I, I can't uh, say enough thankfulness for that and, um, and, uh, and how much has changed my life in the last 90, 100 days. And I don't feel in conclusion here, I want to say it, it's not like some kind of, oh, I'm on a, like a temporary high and I'll fall apart again. I really feel my insides out have really changed in a lot of ways. I'm much more actually honest about what happened at home, especially with my mother, because I always kind of tried to protect her in my mind. And now I don't. I just see her for, I love her, but for what she was and what happened, it didn't happen. And that came out of a lot of that work. Um, so sorry for losing some of my train of thought there. My time is up, but um, you know, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for letting me share. Um, I'm such a grateful um, member of this entire community. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, 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 Tim. Thank you,